Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Paul Chung. He's the culinary director of Cezanne Hospitality. So he oversees Cezanne, Angler San Francisco, and Angler LA as part of the hospitality group there, as well as he'll be over any new concepts and restaurants that they wind up opening here in the future. They currently are working on a few things, but haven't made that known to the public and kind of formalized anything yet. Paul is the first culinary director that we've had on the podcast, so super interesting from that standpoint of what a culinary director actually does and how he goes about kind of his day and bouncing between all the different concepts and staff and and everything like that too as well. So we get into all that, but before that, we go through his career how he got started cooking, you know, he was in DC for a while, working there, how he wound up kind of moving to San Francisco, getting involved with Cezanne, working with Chef Josh Skeens and working also with Laurent Gras and, and kind of what they're doing now and how things have changed and, and where they're kind of headed and, and focus is some surprising stuff in there too as well. So I actually had the chance to meet Paul in person a few weeks before recording this when I recorded the episode with Chef Marcin Kroll. We actually recorded that at Saison in the bar area. Paul was generous enough to stay there and sit in on the episode so we could record it. And uh, we already had this kind of on the books, but it was still cool to meet him in person and, and see him working in the kitchen too as well. And and then a few weeks later, we were able to get this recorded. So kind of a bookend to that whole situation, you know, starting with Mark Bright and then Marcin Kroll when they did the guest dinner there and, and now Paul Chung. So you can follow Paul on Instagram at PB Kitchen. Also follow at Saison Hospitality, at Saison SF, at Angler Restaurants too as well on Instagram. Saison uh, Smokehouse, they still have their Instagram up, probably more on the way on, on kind of what they decide to do with that and finding a standalone location and whatnot too. So make sure to follow all that stuff on Instagram. You can check out our website. We have a page up for them. Uh, it's got all those handles and everything on there, so where you can find them too as well. Spoonmob.com is the website. Uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoonmob. Um, we're on Twitter and Facebook, but mainly use the Instagram. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. We have a YouTube channel. We put everything up there too as well, but uh, mainly you know Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon. We're pretty much on every platform. So if you have a customized player or some small independent player that you like just because of the user interface or something like that, we're probably on there. So you should be able to find us, uh, but just make sure to follow, subscribe so all the new episodes come directly into the feed there for you. Uh, but without further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Paul Chung, the culinary director over at Saison Hospitality in San Francisco, California. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on. Uh, I know you're a busy guy. There's always stuff kind of being dropped on your schedule. Been kind of chasing you for a little bit just because you guys went through obviously coming out of COVID and reopening and everything, staffing, all that stuff. So we'll get to all that and you kind of taking on some new duties and, and stuff like that too as well in your current role. But before we get there, you know, like to start with everybody at kind of the beginning, you know, how did you kind of first get started with cooking? I mean, was it something that you always wanted to do? Was it something that you grew up around? You know, I never considered cooking as uh, a serious profession until later on, like after high school, I, I would say like until maybe halfway through college, I really started considering as a career change, but really blessed my entire life to be around good food. My mother is an incredible, incredible cook. You know, she was the oldest of, I believe I have like six, six or seven aunts and uncles on just her side of the family. And she's the eldest. And so she kind of had to take care of everyone growing up. You know, she really grew up in the era of Korea before, like right after the war, when it was still a very impoverished country. It wasn't really developed like the, you know, 
like the big companies like Samsung and Hyundai, those things just didn't exist back then, you know? It's still like a countryside. And so she was like, just, like it's groomed to be an incredible caretaker and cook. And, you know, lucky for me, I was raised in the same fashion. My, uh, my family immigrated to America before I was born. Uh, they came to uh, Fairfax, Virginia. Um, I was born in Alexandria, Virginia, like maybe 10 minutes out of DC. At the time when we moved there in the early 80s, there was a huge influx of immigration that was happening, but there wasn't any like Korean grocery stores or access to a lot of Asian ingredients. But there were access to things that she can do to create Korean ingredients. You know, they're like there was access to soybeans that she can make and make her own tenjang, which is like a Korean kind of miso, essentially. Different bacteria, very similar in process. I remember going as a kid, going to the Chesapeake Bay and, you know, making our own fish sauce with these uh, little like bait fish called spots. And she would, we would ferment them and pack them with salts and like let them just, I don't know. I thought they were rotting when I was a kid, <laughs> but we just like leave them in our backyard and let them just really age. And it turns into this like gnarly fish sauce. And she would use that in her cooking. And in the process of making uh, tenjang, you also extract tamari. And so, you know, we would do that and we would make like fresh soy crabs, like raw marinated soy crabs after we catch a bunch of blue crabs in the Chesapeake. And, you know, so I was always surrounded with like this really unique perspective of what food can be. And as a young kid, of course, it's a little alarming when you're like the, the Korean kid in like predominantly uh, non-Asian neighborhood and your mom is packing you like these weird ingredients for lunch. And like when you bring friends over, they're always like, what's that smell? Because something is fermenting in the backyard all the time. So it was, it was really... It was a really interesting childhood. Looking back on it, it kind of just ingrained in me this this love for cuisine. And fermentation is extremely fashionable now and trendy in the culinary scene. And these are things that I've just been doing my entire life with my mother, not even realizing uh, how special it was. Food has always been such a huge part of uh, my family. And I just realized how much I loved it more and more, um, especially being in college and being away from family made me realize how much I miss the family gatherings. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, when my parents immigrated to America, they actually immigrated here with about four or five different families. There, we had one sponsor and we all kind of came together. And it's weird. They all had kids at the same time. We all became family friends together for the better part up until like college. Every year we celebrated Thanksgiving together. I think that was the first real American tradition that all of our families took on together where you have these five immigrant families and every Thanksgiving we all gathered together. We try to make the best American meal that we could. But we always have a little kimchi on the side just in case. And, you know, those, those kind of gatherings really stuck with me. I remember all of them. I remember all the, the friends there, the different families, you know, all the kids running around. And, you know, when I, when I left Virginia um, to go to school, I really missed that. I really missed what food did for my childhood and like how I was raised. And I think that's when I really started seriously considering my passion for food and exploring it at another level. Everything that you kind of said, I have also heard from Dave Chang, who's probably one of the most famous chefs that we have in America and then also a very famous, you know, Korean chef too. But he kind of talked about all that stuff too. He grew up kind of in the same area in Virginia. I don't know why that is that, that that's a, I don't, is the, I don't know if that's like a sister city thing or what. Virginia actually has like one of the, I think it's like the third or fourth largest Korean population in America. It's something about it. From what I understand, public education system is really good in, in Virginia. And that got, uh, kind of got wind in Korea. So when they were choosing where to immigrate, like a lot of Koreans chose Virginia for their public education system. That makes sense then. I was always wondering why like, it seemed like that was a big 
place for Korean families to kind of land. You kind of have this realization about food and family and everything. Were you just focused on school? Did you ever work in a restaurant up to that point before going to culinary school? I worked as a waiter at IHOP. That was actually my first job. But it's not like the kind of food that I imagined, really. You know, I was every like Sunday, I might work the back line and flip a couple of pancakes, you know, but usually I was a waiter, like collecting tips. I liked it because I got to walk home with $40 in my pocket every day. Didn't have to worry about like taxes or anything. And it was just a great first job when I was like 14, I believe when I was 14 years old. The I think the working age in Virginia is 15. But if you get like good enough grades, you could apply for a worker's permit like a junior worker's permit, you have to go to your school and show your grades and they'll like sign you off, say, okay, like, you know, working won't really affect your studies. And then you can get a worker's permit. And that's what I did. And I also took a lot of um, Votech classes, like vocational school classes. We actually had this uh, culinary class in a different high school. I just always did home ec because I liked, I wanted an easy class. And I started off baking cookies and making gingerbread houses. <laughs> and my teacher uh, at the time in eighth grade, told me that I was really good at it. And she told me I should like consider going to a higher level, like cooking culinary class. Junior year of high school, I had finished all the prerequisites of like my math and science. You know, I always did all my math early. I started algebra like in eighth grade and, you know, did summer school classes. So by junior year, my math requirements were done. Like I had to take no more math. So I was like, okay, now I have all these free electives. What do I do? I would take a shuttle bus to a different high school in Chantilly. And I met a chef there, Chef Clay Doubleday incredible mentor for me, you know, like he really changed my life and like, especially took me when I was a really awkward teenager. And, like, you know, we would hang out after school and stuff and just a super great guy. And he kind of, I think, planted that seed of like, okay, like there's actually something out there in this culinary world that I had never even thought about, you know, like my experience in Virginia, going to a restaurant with like Applebee's or TGI Fridays, or, you know, we'd go to a Korean restaurant. I've never been to like an actual white linen restaurant where you sit down and you dress up, you drink wine. Like, I don't think I've ever tasted wine until I was like 21. Like, I just, my family just doesn't drink wine. They're a little bit more into it now. I think I've introduced a little bit of that in their life. You know, I always bring back a nice bottle of wine or champagne or sake. And like, we enjoy some of the little finer things now. My parents were always like working class. So we didn't really go out and enjoy food like that. So going to uh, that vocational school in Chantilly really kind of planted seed opened my eyes. and So then after that, you wind up going, I think, to Johnson & Wales University, right? But you get a degree in nutrition sciences. So was that like your intended kind of career path was like the nutrition aspect of it? Or was that a way that you were going to turn it into culinary? It's one of those things where I wanted to, all my brothers are in STEM, you know, or, or like finance or something like that. You know, it's it's just kind of been ingrained in our family for like, you know, financial success and things of, of that nature. It's like, these are the career fields you kind of target. And, you know, I, I honestly didn't know what I was getting myself into. And so I was like, okay, then I'm going to explore something like this. This way I get to kind of dabble in food and see if this is something I really want to do. And at the same time, I get to have a, a major that I could fall back on. If I need to transfer to another school, I still have accredited courses. I'm a planner. And, you know, like I wanted to make sure that things didn't work. I always had a plan B, especially at that young of age where I wasn't really sure what was going on with my life. Did you ever do any sort of culinary school necessarily then? Yeah, yeah. So you could take them as part of like a prereq for the uh, nutrition program. You know, they want you to get active with like a uh, couple of cooking. So they have like sports 
nutrition and things where you're working with different dietary restrictions and all that kind of stuff. And that's where I, I first learned that you can make a brownie with black beans. That's <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> it tasted pretty good. So things like that. It was a good time. I actually really enjoyed my time in Johnson Wales. It was very eye-opening for me to just kind of leave Virginia and leave my bubble and see like something else out there. Where was the school located? Which location did you go to? Rhode Island. Probably not too big of a culture shock than I would imagine. I mean, Rhode Island's different, but you know, they still get snow. Virginia still gets snow. So it's not still get cold. I think it's more the the culture shock of like the type of people, you know, like the, the way people carry themselves is different. There's an edge to it. Yeah, there's a little edge to it. Yeah, there really is. There's really a little edge to it. I remember like when I was a kid, I didn't really follow baseball, but you know, you just wore whatever baseball hat that you thought some rapper was wearing and you thought it was cool. And so I had a New York Yankees hat once and I left it in the backseat of my car in Boston and someone smashed my windows just to write sucks underneath my hat and then left my hat back there. And I'm just like, man, what is this place? Why are they so like gritty and like edgy there? Yeah, that's before, you know, before they won the World Series. So it's not as extreme as it used to be, you know, now that they've won a couple of World Series there. Because I grew up, you know, on Cape Cod, so not too far away. But it's a very passionate sports area, New England. And there's this just, you think you're better than me if you're from the outside edge thing. And it all kind of ingrains itself too with like, you know, the Irish mob back in, you know, the, the 70s and 80s and stuff to kind of that attitude like eventually spilled over into kind of like the public persona too as well so i don't get back there enough probably you know still have family in the area but it's not as bad as or it's not as extreme as it was in like the late 90s early 2000s before they finally like won the world series and, and some other stuff they've, they've settled down uh, a little bit so yeah, you know, I have some amazing friends that I met there. A lot of my professors, I still keep in touch with there. And, you know, overall, I would say it was such a wonderful experience. Providence is a beautiful city. You know, I still remember the water fire that they do there, fishing in Newport. Like, I had so many great memories doing that. Like, overall, I love that area. I would love to go back. Um, I still remember squid fishing right off that bridge in front of the Hyatt Hotel in, in Newport. And then, you know, you get all the live squids and you cast them back out and you get the striped bass. And, a lot of good memories doing that stuff. Based on your experience with culinary school, if someone were to come up to you in the kitchen now, serious about becoming a chef, owning a restaurant of their own one day, and they asked you if you would recommend they go to culinary school or should they keep just bouncing around at different high profile restaurants and learning as much as they can on the job, what would you recommend? That's a little bit tough. I think it really depends on the person. I think there's a level of maturity that is required. I don't think I would have excelled as much if I didn't take a few culinary classes in school. I don't think I was as mature as I needed to be. And it taught me, you know, just base level things that I needed to know. And it gave me some confidence knowing the, you know, the, the knowledge and the history of the things that I was working with. If I were to just bounce around, I don't know if I would have ended up in the same place. I also have a lot of peers and friends who never even went to culinary school. And I think they're far better cooks than I am. And they're they're exceptionally talented. So it's really hard to say what the right path is. I, I guess it really depends on the person, you know, how, what their learning style is. I know a lot of days schools are offering like four-year programs. That I don't think is necessary. I think maybe like a two-year or like an 18-month, eight-month, something to just kind of get your feet wet and let you see what it's like would be, would be okay. 
Uh, I also highly suggest that before going to culinary school, that people really try working uh, in a restaurant, not like a high profile one, but even maybe just like a hotel four star restaurant or something, something where like it's busy, you have to work hard, you have to work Saturdays, you have to work holidays and get used to that lifestyle and see if that's something that you really want to continue to do for the rest of your life before you decide that this is a career you want to take on. The number one struggle that I see with a lot of people, you know, being in a restaurant requires a lot of sacrifice of time. And I think these days, people are starting to realize that time is the one commodity that you can never really get back. And so instead of living a life of regret, they should really see if this is a career path they even really want to pursue and see if that sacrifices balances out for them um, internally. And so that's just the main thing. I, I can't really give advice on what is the best path for everyone, but I would examine it from that angle before deciding if it's something I want to do. After you complete school, where do you go? What happens there? Because doing some research before the podcast, I mean, I know eventually you wind up at the Four Seasons in DC, but I think at some point you kind of stage in like New York, Chicago, Paris, Seoul. Yeah, I really just stodged around all over the place. So I guess um, one of my first real culinary jobs that I had was uh, with the Craft Restaurant Group. They really ingrained in me all the fundamentals I really needed. I think that's actually, going back to culinary school, I think that's when I really realized that like, yeah, you learn a lot of recipes and terms and the history of like the mother sauces in culinary school, but working at a craft really taught me the proper way to roast like everything, you know, roast, grill, braise, stew, complete fundamentals. I actually really believe every cook should work in a restaurant like that. No one should start off going to a three Michelin star restaurant. You really need to work your way up because at different levels, you learn different things. And it's, it's almost like, I don't know, it's, it's almost like how I look at it, like how you learn math. You know, you can't learn subtraction without addition. And, you know, you learn multiplication, then division. If you just try to learn division, you might understand the concept, but you don't know why you're doing certain things. And cooking is the same way for me. I think it's building blocks. I think these days people are so quick to social media kind of, is a double-edged sword, I guess. It's the best way to share knowledge. And I think that having all that knowledge out there is so wonderful because it's definitely going to progress the next generation of cooking. Um, but at the same time, that's done by like a few outliers, I think. You know, the, the majority of people probably go out there and they see little like recipes of, you know, like you mix this chemical and that chemical and it does this thing. But there's like a hundred ways to skin a cat for like thickening sauces. And like, you need to understand what application needs to be used for what and why. And there's just so many fundamentals that you need to build on. And you don't always need to turn to like xanthan gum for something. <laughs> there's a lot of great ways to do things. And so I, I really think that's important that cooks learn all those fundamentals. I highly recommend to everyone to work in a restaurant that's like busy and just focused on those fundamentals like like craft was when I was there. You know, after that, I did stage around a lot. I stage around New York a bit. You know, I spent some time... Um, in Chicago afterwards. And I, I worked with Chef Laurent at L2O. I'm sure they'll come back later, uh, you know, because he eventually came to Saison afterwards. And, you know, it was, it was always so shocking to see him. You know, it was great because he recognized me right away. And he gave me a little smirk. I'm like, yeah, I'm the kid that used to drop the ladle and make all the noise. <laughs> so like he remembers that. And, uh, you know, that was cool. But yeah, I just spent a lot of time stodging around. You know, I really wanted to learn uh, a lot about different styles out there. You know, I did a, a stage in, in Paris for about like two, three weeks uh, at Pierre Garnier just to kind of see what was going on over there. I got extremely lucky to get in. Um, then I did some time in Seoul, same thing, really bounced around. I actually did some, I went back towards Boston for a little bit. I, I staged that Clio with Ken Oranger. 
um, at the time. You know, I did a few stages at Del Posto. I, I'm a very hands-on learner. And so like, I can't look at cookbooks and just grasp certain things. I think I'm better at it now, but I really have to like get my hands in there and to do things. I always thought the best thing for me was to just kind of stage around as much as possible and couch surf. And so that's kind of what I did for about two, three years, just kind of traveling and seeing where I can learn. Did each kind of one of those places lead to the next, like you wind up developing connections or was it just places that you were interested in, in working or you heard that they were taking stages and you were like, yeah, I want to go there. I want to go there. I kind of had a list, you know, like Pierre Garnier, I knew I wanted to go. My, my chef at Kraft brought in one of his old cookbooks and I saw its food. I was like, that's, that's what I want to learn. <laughs> you know, And so like that really inspired me to go out there. And like L2O, when I went there, I, I saw the Anthony Bourdain show where he was eating there with uh, Eric Repair. And I saw them dining there. That was like, I'm going there next. And so it was really just about like, what just drew my inspiration at the moment? I didn't really... I wish I kept in touch with a lot more people and made a lot more connections. I kind of focused more on just like the food and learning tasks. I didn't build as many relationships as I, I think I should have. I just kind of jumped around based upon what I thought that I wanted to learn next. Was that your first trip to Korea? No, that wasn't. Um, I, I went there like twice when I was younger. Um, one trip, I don't even remember. Apparently, I was a baby. And then I went once when I was in um, sixth grade. I stayed there for a summer uh, with my cousins. And then after like, I left New York, that's when I went there. I stayed there for about like six months. I just got cooked around. But back then, it was really interesting because in Korea at the time, no one was really doing fine dining Korean food. Um, Michelin wasn't there. You know, World's 50 Best wasn't around. If you had Korean food, it was, it was more like... It wasn't popularized like the way it is now where like restaurants like Kaon is doing it with like traditional style, emperor style cuisine. The best restaurants were always in hotels. Koreans love like large, elaborate buffets or, you know, you would have a few restaurants like Pierre Garnier in Korea that were like hyper focused on the French techniques or a French chef who opened a like a restaurant in Korea. It isn't how it is now. I think the the scene and the exposure that Korean restaurants are getting now is incredible. I'm just so proud of what Koreans are doing over there right now. I would love to get over there and do some pop-ups and like work with them and learn some more because I think they have such a unique perspective on what Korean cuisine can be uh, nowadays. When I was there, it was not like that at all. So how did you wind up then at the Four Seasons in DC? So I had left L2O and I, was, I actually got in a really bad bike accident. I didn't have insurance at the time. And I was riding my bike back and forth from L2O. Um, and I got clipped by a taxi, my back wheel. And I like flipped over and I landed on my shoulder wrong. And, you know, I needed to go through like physical therapy and everything, but I didn't have insurance at the time. And so I went back home and like my parents took me back in and they're like, okay, we could get you on our insurance policy and everything and go through kind of like PT there. And so I moved back to DC and after like a month or so, I actually heard that Chef Laurent had left L2O and I was like, okay, well, what's my next step then? You know, the guy that I moved there for is no longer there. Um, and I was just kind of going through recovery and just talking to some of my old chefs. And uh, one of my old chefs told me about Chef David Varley, who was the chef in the Four Seasons at the time, who later became the corporate chef for Bina. He introduced me and he was like, why don't you just go check them out? And I went there and it was just by luck, I guess, it just turned out to be a great experience. I learned a lot there. You know, I learned a lot about my management style there, like especially working at a hotel. I've never had to you know, learn how to mentor and coach and speak the way I needed to speak. Um, and the Four Seasons is all about that. And so I really learned about my management style and what I needed to work on. 
Um, I'm still working on today. Yeah, that was a great experience as well. I, I really think I've just been kind of blessed that I've been at the right place at the right time throughout my career. Um, I don't attribute any of my success to like anything that I done well. It's more like something just kind of fell on my lap and I went with it. And uh, yeah, I was like, okay, this is an opportunity. Take it. And I just try to be as positive as I can about it. And it's just gotten me to where I needed to go, I guess. You know, you wind up being the CDC there. The Four Seasons, it's a Michael Mina restaurant in the Four Seasons Hotel. They're both essentially brand names in their own right. What was the biggest challenge with being involved with both those kind of brands simultaneously? Because obviously, Michael Mina is famous for opening multiple restaurants in a year's time span. And, and usually hotels is kind of what he focuses on. But the Four Seasons is like this brand dedicated to guest experience too as well. But there's no Michelin Guide in DC at that time. So like, were there any challenges like trying to balance both those? Oh, yeah. There's always challenges to that kind of stuff. You know, there's always things of having to do certain things for VIP guests that are on the menu. You know, I, I think what's really special about Michelin restaurants or at least Saison is that, you know, we do a lot of guest research and we know what their dietary restrictions are beforehand. And so we could prepare a proper meal, even if they have certain restrictions. I think the hardest challenge of the Michael Mina Four Seasons combination is that we cannot say no to a guest because we're Four Seasons branded. But, you know, there's also things that... Michael Mina as a restaurateur represents. And, you know, there's a certain level of quality we want our brand to represent. And so when we're kind of shooting from the hip or like a surprise comes up at the 11th hour, like, how do we prepare for that? You know, and those are the little frustrations we had. You know, beyond that, both brands were very supportive. You know, I actually really loved working there. I remember there was the executive chef of the hotel, Chef Doug, was actually a great mentor for me. You know, he was, he's the one that really like took me in and taught me about like coaching and how to like really work with people, you know, because we had divisions there where, you know, they were just not everyone was there because they wanted to be a chef. You know, there are people there who are just there to have a job. There are people there who are there supporting their family. They have very strict schedules. Uh, and, and then you had people who are young cooks who are really aspiring to grow and you have to manage them all differently and make sure that you're giving them the tools that they succeed at the same time, inspiring them in certain ways and want to put their best foot forward. And, you know, what really makes uh, people motivated. He's the one that really taught me how to do all that. And I really appreciate working with him on that kind of stuff. And then of course, uh, Chef David Varley, who left to become the corporate chef. Later on, uh, Adam Solwell came in to become the new executive chef there. He was a huge mentor for me too. You know, like he really let me just kind of shine. You know, he was like, what do you want to do? And he just let me explore all sorts of avenues of uh, food at the time. And that built a lot of my confidence. So yeah, I mean, even though it wasn't one of like the Michelin restaurants I was staging at or working at at the time, it was probably one of the restaurants that I learned the most about myself. It was really special for me. And I think it gave me an opportunity to shine. And that's why they uh, moved me to you know San Francisco to join their corporate team. Working at that restaurant and in that environment, I mean, did you guys, the restaurant do all the ordering or did you have like some assistance from the Four Seasons that would help? We did all of our own. It was a restaurant. It's like a, I guess, kind of like a management deal where there's a restaurant in the hotel, but everything is done by us. The only thing is that the employees are actually employees of the Four Seasons. But as the managers, we're managing the establishment kind of thing. Like a mixed blend. Yeah, I just know like in Vegas, like sometimes some of the, the bigger casinos and stuff, restaurants kind of are able to leverage like their network for supplies. So I wasn't sure if that was kind of the, still the same deal or... Or not. So your time kind of ends, you know, right as the city's getting a, a Michelin guide 
What was the vibe like right before you left with the dining scene there, knowing that rumors are this is going to happen? That kind of swirls up some stuff. You know, I think there was a lot of growth in DC at the time. I think it was still like a couple of years away from where DC's like potential was. I, I mean, I go back now and I think DC is incredible. Their food scene is, is much better than it was when I left. It was a very unique period where it was getting a lot of traction. People were trying to experiment with different kinds of cuisines. Uh, you saw a lot uh, more honest representations of different cultural cuisines popping up. I, I hate the term like ethnic cuisine, but like it's more honest to the culture of that type of cuisine, I, I would say. You know, like there's a lot of Thai food that's watered down for the American palate and it's delicious, but it's not real Thai food, like the spice levels and the heat that comes with it and things like that. And so you're starting to see more and more places like that open up. I noticed that a lot. The food scene was really expanding and it was an incredible place to be at the time. It was really sad for me to leave DC, especially because that's my home and like leaving my parents and everything. But, you know, SF just was so enticing at the time. And I got to see the tail end of, you know, Michael Mina when he still had a two-star restaurant, two Michelin star restaurant in San Francisco. And this was like, I saw the tail end right when we were still considered a, a large restaurant group, but we still carried a lot of pride in our Michelin status. Now I think he's transitioned more into like a huge restaurant tour group where he partners with all sorts of casinos and hotels. And that's their focus now. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think, you know, he, has, he does a very good job at feeding the masses. That's just as important as being the person that does like eight covers a night. You know, there, there's a spot, there's a place for everyone, I think, honestly. And if you're making great experiences for people and they're enjoying their time there, then you're doing something right. And that's all that matters. How did they approach you to, to get you to move to San Francisco? Was it just like, hey, we have, you know, kind of this R&D position. Would you want to do that? Would you be interested? Or how'd that happen? There was a large influx of people from DC that was moving to San Francisco at the time. You know, like I mentioned, uh, Chef Marley had already left. And then Adam was actually moving to take over a restaurant at the time in uh, the Millennium Tower R74. I had two of my uh, Sue's who were moving out there to explore other options. And so, you know, when Mina offered that position, they were just like, hey, like we have this position available. Like, would you like to join the team and do this and open new restaurants with us? You know, it just kind of seemed like the right move at the time. You know, I had a, I knew I had a good support system. I had a couple of friends move out there a year before to go work at Bennu. It, w it didn't feel like I was moving out there knowing nobody like I've done in a lot of the other cities. So it just felt like the right move for me. And you are the lead corporate R&D chef. What all does that entail? It's a lot of restaurant opening and um, R&D management. And so at the Mina Group, because we were trying to transition into this huge, I guess, restaurant group, we needed to start developing consistency. And a lot of it had to do with this thing called the recipe exchange. Um, they have their own like servers and online platform that they introduce to every restaurant where all of these recipes are documented and tested and custom, like and custom fitted for per location. Um, so that when it's time to open the restaurant, all the legwork is pretty much done for these chefs. You know, we go through and before we open a restaurant, we'll go through and learn about the purveyors, have them all signed up, you know, adjust any base recipes that we use at one location to the other using the sources that are available to us, adjust the recipes and, and load them up for them. And so they don't really have to think about it as much. They could really focus on the other things that are challenges for uh, a restaurant opening. Um, Michael Mina has done an incredible job of creating this 
uh, like corporate task force team where he just kind of bounces around from location to location to open restaurants for him. You know, I think that's probably the success of, you know, his restaurant group and why he has so many establishments because he has a team that's focused just on that. I was a part of that team too. And, you know, the traveling takes a toll on you. I thought it was going to be exciting because I just, I loved traveling. I wanted to keep seeing more of the world. And it took me to some really interesting places. You know, I never thought I would end up in Tampa Bay or, uh, you know, Jackson Hole, Wyoming or places like that. Took me to a lot of weird interesting in a good way, like four seasons locations around the world. And uh, I saw a lot, met a lot of cool people, but the traveling does beat you down. It really does. You know, living out of a suitcase for a year and a half is, is not the best way to experience life. How big was the team that you were like in charge of? The Connor team, it was broken up to like different sections, but our team was about four to five people at a time. And they each had their like perspective roles I worked very closely with, well, Chef Veronica, she was the like the corporate pastry lead. She worked with uh, Lincoln Carlson, who actually has a bunch of great restaurants in California right now. Uh, Michael Rafiti was also on the team. He kind of led the opening and training of everything. And I guess most of the operations, he has a restaurant called like Albi in DC now, which is incredible. Uh, and then another friend, Mike Vida. Um, and so the team fluctuated a lot depending on which locations you're going to. We always had like, we would always be introducing, I guess, additional task force members to help in a sense that you have like a core team that travels. But if we're traveling to a place in the East Coast and we need extra help, they'll contact DC and be like, hey, we'd send down a couple of two chefs from DC. We need some help. And they'll like be like, hey, who wants to go? Or if you're in San Francisco and you know at the time in San Francisco, there's a Michael Mina, Arn 74, Bourbon Steak, all these establishments, you know, we would be shifting sous chefs and restaurants around all the time based upon what kind of help we needed. And it was it was a really interesting network that was created. It's always great when you don't have to worry about backfilling a position and you always have someone that could just step up. Hiring and keeping a team staffed is probably one of the most difficult jobs you're ever going to find in a restaurant. And Mina just created a system that was incredible. Like you said, you guys are reworking some of these recipes depending on the location, but you guys are also coming up with new stuff too, right? For new concepts that are going to open. So when you're doing that, how did you kind of know when a dish was ready to actually be kind of uploaded into the system and, and that's going to go on the menu. Did you guys have like a testing process or was it just kind of a group consensus? Like this is good. This is, you know, where it needs to be. Yes. Essentially, you know, it's the group consensus and, you know, we always go through and we eat it. There's this term that we always talk about, like eatability of it, of a dish where it's like, does it hit all those factors? Like, is it, is it aligned with the concept that we're trying to create here? You know, because not everything needs to be uh, very elaborate. So visually, does it align with the concept? Does it taste good? Uh, and is it easy to eat? Is it easy to en enjoy? You know, there's a lot of food. It was very interesting. You know, there was like that period of molecular gastronomy was really big and everyone was trying to do things for the sake of doing things and see what they can do. It's kind of like a flex move, right? And so we had this really big thing where like, what's the eatability of it? Like, is this something that someone could inherently understand how to eat it and enjoy it? And is it delicious at the same time? And if it didn't hit all those check marks, then it wasn't something that made it to the menu. And we would adjust and adjust and keep going for it. So after about like two years, I think, or so with the Mina group, you wind up going over to Eat With and you wind up being the director of culinary development. What was Eat With? So Eat With is, I think they got bought out at this point by a European company, but Eatwith was actually a tech company. It was a, a tech company kind of like 
that was catered towards events and uh, cultural exchange in the sense that um, when Airbnb was first really big, you know, it was kind of popping up all over the place um, in the world. Uh, Eat With was kind of an experiential component of it where uh, you can actually log into the platform and find people who are hosting dinner parties or events for fellow travelers. And it's all curated by locals. So if you go to like Turkey, for example, or uh, Tel Aviv, and you don't want to go to a restaurant, you want to experience like kind of inside the culture, you could find an experience like that where someone is like just having like a dinner gathering and you're invited to come eat. Inherently, it's a very special idea. It works in, I think, a lot of markets where traveling and cultural exchange is looked for. I don't know if that's, it was a big hit in America at the time, because in America, people don't really travel like that. You don't really travel to go to a stranger's home and eat, you know, but overseas it was, it was, it did very well. You know, as the culinary development manager, you know, I worked with a lot of the community managers and kind of training these people because we have to have, uh, the one thing that I saw is that we have to have a sense of consistency across the board. We can't just let anybody cook any meal any single time. And so we had to train them on basic things, experience-wise, cooking-wise, you know, how to utilize certain things, um, more so in America than, I think, overseas. You know, the cost of ingredients is so much cheaper overseas. And so, you know, it was just, it was working with all the community managers and all the different people on our platform to create these experiences and stuff. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. It was like probably the, it really opened my eyes to more technical components. You know, it really excelled my key learnings and how like tech companies run and how to like look at other businesses besides restaurants. It, it's just something that I wanted to see and try. I was in San Francisco. I had just finished touring for about two years. I was with the Mina Group for almost like four or five years. And then I was like, you know, I need a break. I want to stay in San Francisco. I'd moved to San Francisco, paid rent in San Francisco and not spent more than like a week in San Francisco. I was like, I need something where I can actually like experience the city. And so this was like a perfect opportunity for me. And I think uh, actually Mina was on the advisory board anyways. So he was kind of like, you're still working for me. You're just helping me build a different company. Uh, Yeah, it it was fun. No, but I think you're right because rewatching some Anthony Bourdain episodes, you know, when he goes to a Eastern European country or somewhere in the Middle East, all the best food is usually at somebody's home because it's so labor intensive to make some of that stuff with some of the ingredients that you're not going to find. Like there's some good restaurants, but like you're not going to find this amazing restaurant out there that like everybody's going to because some of those recipes are especially the ancestral ones are just passed down and like they take all day to make. So it's like you can't really build a restaurant like around it. During your time there with Eat With too, you actually started, I think, volunteering for City College of San Francisco. I think you were on their advisory board. How did that kind of come about? What made you want to do that? Yeah, like anything, I just kind of fell into it. I used to do a lot of volunteer work. I'm sure like when people meet me, they just, I'm not like, I don't come off as the friendliest guy. I know that. But like, I love working with the youth. I really do. I actually used to be like a Sunday school teacher for like three, four years. Um, I, was, I did the Big Brother program when I was in DC. Like, I really like working with uh, the youth when my influence is the most impactful and kind of like helping them kind of find the right path. I just love that experience of coaching. And so San Francisco, I wanted to find something unique to that nature. You know, I, I started off volunteering at a few soup kitchens on my days off just to kind of uh, help out. There were a few cooking classes that you could volunteer for, but they needed they needed you to agree to doing it for like six months and it had to be scheduled like three times a week or they won't take you. And so like my options were very limited. And when I was with Eat With, uh, 
I was introduced to a uh, nonprofit called La Cocina, where it's a wonderful company. They really help like women immigrants or people from like low income backgrounds kind of develop their own business plan. You know, like they like we we're just talking about how some of these recipes are so hard to reproduce in a restaurant that no one tries to attempt them. They actually do that. They'll take on these people who need a little bit of help and help them open up these food companies or brands and launch them out. And it's a nonprofit. It's all for free. They just do it to help people out. It's an exceptional company. You know, I tried to help out there, uh, but at the time, you know, there really wasn't a, a place for me. And I went to one of their events and they brought uh, City College of San Francisco. And it's, it's a free like community college where a lot of people go for culinary programs as well. And they said, maybe you could help out over there. And it just kind of one thing led to another. And I ended up becoming part of the uh, advisory board for one year. You know, I, I did a few talks and we talked about like the intersection of, you know, tech and food, um, you know, talked about restaurants, you know, depending on which career path they want to go. It wasn't much of a mentorship program, not as much as I wanted it to be at least, but it was more of me appealing to a, a broader segment of people and kind of trying to guide them towards all the different opportunities out there. I think a lot of people have a lot of passion for food and they don't know how to explore the passion because they feel like you have to go to being a chef at a restaurant. Especially nowadays, you really don't have to do that. And so uh, I think with my background coming from fine dining and then now transitioning into a food tech company, which is really booming at the time, I think they found it very interesting for me to talk about my segue and how like these two different paths uh, intersected and they just really wanted to learn about that background. And so I'd go do talks there and stuff like that. Then I think October 2016, you wind up joining Cezanne, the restaurant group. You, I think you start off as like the corporate operations and logistics manager. What exactly was that? How did you wind up there? It was such a weird title. It was actually like the corporate logistics chef. And the reason why is that we had a culinary director at the time, uh, Scott Clark, incredible dude. He's also from Virginia. I feel like there's a lot of talented people from Virginia. They were at a point where they wanted to start expanding. And, you know, Cezanne is such a wonderful legacy establishment of San Francisco. And they wanted to open another restaurant. One of my peers from the Mina group, Ali Reeves, ended up joining Cezanne. She asked me to come on and help with the opening of their next establishment because she knew of my experience with the Mina group and everything. And so I was brought on to kind of spearhead the entire opening of both anglers in San Francisco and in LA. And so that was probably the main thing. I, I did so much of everything else along the way, but the main purpose of my hire was to be kind of like the project management lead for the entire opening in terms of like architectural designs, working with the steel engineers. R&D was of course a part of it as well, training, hiring, just everything it took to get that restaurant open. And that was, that was my baby. So I, England has a very soft place in my heart. Uh, it's the first restaurant that I opened with Cezanne and hopefully it's not the, the last. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, within the next five to six years, if I'm still with the group, we, we have, you know, at least two to three more projects because I really want to find homes for some of our talented staff. I have a lot of people who are ready to like run their own restaurants and, you know, take it to the next level, but I don't really have opportunities for them. So I would love to keep growing this restaurant group and getting it to the point where I can find homes for them where they could excel and find their own their own pace and their own style. So that's that's the goal for me now at this point. Everybody talks about COVID when relating to restaurants in terms of restaurants being closed and the financial aspect. But one thing I think that gets lost is like you just mentioned where there's no growth for the people that 
were still employed at some restaurants that that stayed open. I mean, some people, you know, got laid off and come back. But like you're saying, now you have like all these people that had an extra essentially two years within the same restaurant that normally they would have gone on to this other property within the group or something like that, but the group couldn't expand. So now you have like all this high level talent, like kind of stuck. And it's like, well, we don't want to lose these people, but like, we also like can only open things so fast too as well. So like, it's, it's this weird kind of mesh. When you first started at Cezanne, you know, with Cezanne hospitality and everything, how different was the environment, culture, everything compared to like where you had been previously? Because like you said, Cezanne's this legacy restaurant, got all this press when it first opened and, you know, started as a pop-up and, and then became this three Michelin star and everything. And, and so you walk in here, was it completely different than anything you've experienced before? Was there some similarities? No, not really. I think it's, I mean, it's a special place. The restaurant's beautiful, of course. And the main difference is that they do everything as hard as possible, utilizing that fire. <laughs> you know? But in terms of you know, the atmosphere and the culture, it was pretty much similar to things that I saw in Europe. You know, you had a person that's extremely nice. You had the person that's extremely cutthroat. <laughs> There's a little bit of competition, a little bit of like brotherly love. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a restaurant. It's a high, high skill level, you know, restaurant. You're going to find all the, the normal personalities <laughs> that you find in any of those locations. You know, I felt really blessed that, you know, the team really accepted me and took me in. Um, one of my closest friends that I still keep in touch with that I made from that uh, location is Matt Cam. Uh, Matt Cammer, uh, he's the uh, the chef of Harbor House and uh, I believe in Elk, California. And, you know, he's got two stars up there. He's doing incredible things, incredible, incredible things. Um, he's such a talented guy too. Super talented, super level-headed, probably one of the nicest guys I know, extremely soft-spoken. Um, and so I felt really blessed um, when I entered that the team was really good to me. I don't know if it's necessarily a promotion or change in title or whatever, but eventually you become culinary director instead of director of culinary logistics or, or whatever the title was kind of before. Was that a promotion or was it just a change in title to take on more responsibility? It was a change in title. We had we we kept things separate where we had a culinary director and a corporate logistics chef. At a certain point, it, it really wasn't necessary. And so when there was a vacancy left in the position, uh, they just kind of dissolved it. And they're like, hey, just, you know, at this point, you're just running. I was running the show already um, at that point. After Scott Clark left, we had a different uh, culinary director came in. He was a really wonderful person. I don't think he really meshed with the the culture as well. And so after he left, they just, I was already doing everything. And they just kind of dissolved the position. We changed the title like a year and a half ago, like two years ago. But it just, it was just never announced. Um, it's funny when the announcement was made, a lot of my friends were like, isn't that what you were already doing? And I was like, yeah, but you know, it's cool. It's cool to get like some acknowledgement now, I guess, at least. <laughs> What's the biggest misconception having that title of culinary director? Because I think most people, when they think of it, they think you're the guy who's not in the restaurant all the time and you're creating these recipes for all these different restaurants within a group. I think that's probably the common knowledge association with that title. And, and I can see that. I understand. I've worked in groups that have culinary directors like that. That is actually not the case for me. I actually like to be very hands-on. I, I was just talking to some team members about the other day. Even when we have new hires at like Angler, I prefer to be on the line cooking with them. I don't like the expediting station. It's kind of boring for me. I understand that it's very important to have someone who understands the pace and who understands the food and you know, the final inspection and all that. 
but for me, I prefer to be on the line with the cooks. And so like just as much as yesterday, like I was in the kitchen at Angler and, you know, we have a influx of new trainees and I was like, Hey, you know, chef, why don't you run the pass? I'm going to be back here with the guys and I'll cook with them all through the night. And that way, at least they're seeing exactly how we expect things to be done rather than, you know, having that telephone effect sometimes. And so I hopefully I don't get that bad rap that I like, I'm never in the kitchen, you know, like, I mean, I get it. it it's, man, it's not really like a bad rap, but it's based on the needs of the company, right? Like if you have a very large company, like there's only so much the culinary director can do. And with my role, it's not just about being in the kitchen as well. You know, I have to take on, I do a lot of the, you know, investment decks. I work with, you know, concept developments. Uh, I do a lot of like brand partnership roles. And so there's a lot of like administrative work that like I had to take on as well. You know, it's just, it's just a lot, you know, like I work very closely with the partners to kind of to map out the scope of what our company is going to look like in the next year, two, three years, what our goals are and everything. And so you have to kind of be able to, to dabble in a little bit of everything. And I like that aspect of it as well. But I always make sure I have time to be at the restaurants and be there on the line with them as well. Um, even when I do R&D, it's not like we do it in a separate kitchen. I, I go to that specific restaurant. I set up a board at that restaurant. I'm like We're going to do the R&D right here together. You know, It's not like I have some lab somewhere else. I think when people hear that title, that's what they think. And I, I just don't think they necessarily realize all the other duties that come along with being a culinary director. Since you were heavily involved with opening Angler, what was kind of the, the hardest or most difficult part of opening that restaurant? The most difficult part is training. I think everything we do with Saison Hospitality, the most difficult part is training because we have this fundamental belief that recipes are guidelines, not exacts. The reason why we believe that is because we thoroughly believe that all the products that we get in from day to day differ. And you know the tomatoes you got yesterday may not be as sweet as the tomatoes you got today. And you try to make supply chains that are as consistent as possible but there's always variables. And that's why we do tastings across the board every day. Every dish is plated up from top to bottom and we taste everything through before service and make all the adjustments we need to make. And every single time it's a little bit different. And so those kind of notes that you pick up or those nuances that you see in a dish come through extreme training over the years of constantly tasting things. And it's really hard to teach line cooks how to do that. And it's very confusing for someone maybe who came from a restaurant where they're like, don't deviate from the recipe, just follow the directions 100%. And we're like, yeah, I know it says like 500 grams of tomatoes. They're not as sweet today. Maybe you should add like 20, 30 more grams or add a little bit of honey or, you know, like things like that and just kind of like adjust it along the way. And so we invest a lot of time training our sous chefs. Whenever we did an opening for Angler SF or Angler LA, you know, we had the sous chefs hired, sous chefs and the CDC hired like four months in advance. And we dropped them into one of our restaurants. I'm like, you're just going to work here with us and just learn our flavor profiles and how we like to balance out our food just before you even get to the other restaurant and learn how to like work in the space. Because that's like the most important thing for us. Just that flavor balance of knowing exactly how much acid to use, how much umami or savoriness needs to be pulled out. And we have a very specific I guess Chef Joshua used to say taste balance that we like to approach in our food. And so we need all of our sous chefs to know that. And so that's probably the most difficult part, like retraining everyone's palates to align the same way. Because everybody has little things I like more. I like my food a little bit more acidic than the average person. 
when I taste things, I have to adjust for that and make sure that it's not too acidic. How challenging is it to oversee both the angler and Saison? Because while there are similarities, angler is kind of the more casual version, I guess. The menu doesn't change as much. You know, there's some staples on there, I think, that have kind of still been on there probably since it opened. How much do you have to kind of balance or switch your brain going back and forth between the places in, in terms of technical skill or ingredients and, and things like that? Depending on the location, the ingredients are actually the same. We were able to get the same ingredients at Angler as we do at Saison. Um, we get the same squabs, we get the same ducks, the same seafood. It actually made Saison a little bit easier because with Angler, because we have a little bit more buying power, it made the logistics for Saison easier so they could get access to better things. It helped out a lot, actually. In terms of managing both, you really need to rely on the team. I am extremely blessed with having some great team members top down all across the board from our, our GMs, our SOMs, our, you know, our marketing team, our, our chief of staff who helps organize everything across the board in terms of new operations. I could not do the job I do today without all these people supporting. Um, and even in the restaurants, you know, our CDCs are so important. Chef Richard, who has been with us for, I think, coming for maybe three years now, you know, I don't have to worry about Saison as long as I know he is there. He will always execute the highest level. And when you have someone that you can trust like that, it doesn't make your job very difficult. Beginning 2019, Josh Geens announces kind of he's going to step out of the kitchen or might already have been in the works a little bit before that too, the transitionality as other concepts he wants to explore. Michelin, you know, because you change chefs, one Michelin star goes away because there's a new chef. That's kind of like their policy. When you kind of take over in that sense, did any pressure of trying to get that star back right away? I know Lauren eventually comes into as well and he's, gotten i think three stars at like four or five different restaurants in his career did you feel any pressure with like yeah it's a byproduct of changing chefs but like we got to get that back i don't think it was really pressure on me it was more pressure on chef laurent that happened when he stepped in and i think that was an error on our end honestly it was one of those things where chef laurent and chef joshua were having a handoff but it was they're doing it together. It wasn't like, okay, one chef is completely leaving the restaurant. There was still continuity between the brand and we're working together. Um, and he was, Chef Laurent did an excellent uh, term at Saison. You know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, having him around, always having seen your old mentor is incredible. And it, it's very unfortunate that I think the way the story was told kind of made this decisive cut that, okay, Joshua Skins left. Uh, Chef Laurent Croix is now in. We had to take a star away. I think if we did a better job telling that story, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like one storm after another. I think after Chef Laurent had to move back to New York to, you know, to be with his wife, it just COVID hit two months later. <laughs> you know? And it was just like, we, we, were, we were hungry to be like, okay, well, like we're going to get that star back right away. And then COVID hits. And then, you know, there's no guide out. And then because there was no guide out, they have to released the guide from like two years ago. And then, so it's another second year of like two stars and we're definitely hungry. We want that back. And we want to, we want to bring that third star back to Saison. We're going to do whatever it takes to get that back. Like I said, I always look at it from both sides. It's scary to lose the star because you inherited it and you don't want to be able to lose it. But at this point, I think that it's going to be its own story for us when we get it back. And now we know we really earned it. And so 
our team is extremely positive about it and we want to push for it. We want to get it back and we're going to do everything we can to. With Lauren being there a little over a year maybe or, or so, and then Josh before him, before he steps away, were you able to take away kind of any new ideas, techniques, skills, you know, with either of them, but even especially Laurent, like when you start working with him again, were there things that you noticed where you're like, I don't remember doing it that way in Chicago. Like clearly like he developed new ways to do things or, you know, because he's older and wiser and things like that. I wish I got to spend more time with him. He was really brought on because we were so focused on the the last stretch of Angler. I think he he came on two months before we're right in the middle of opening of the restaurant. And so I was hyper-focused on Angler at that point. And we're really deep in R&D and training. I got to step in a little bit and see what he was doing. And there's always something to learn from Laurent. That man is like an encyclopedia. You know, I still have all of his old recipes from L2O. I still reference them. <laughs> it's like he, he's probably one of the most fundamentally well-trained chefs I have ever seen in my entire life. He's just, he knows everything about everything. Yeah, I have so much respect for that guy. And he, he'll still work me into the ground, you know? Absolutely. The guy, he's the guy that, comes in before everyone leaves after everyone and then rides like 50 miles back home on his bike. I use a machine. I don't know how he does it. And even when in my younger days, when I was like 23, 24, like he used to put me to shame. He's like, oh, you're, you're tired already. You know, like, what can I say about the guy? He, he was, he's definitely someone that was meant for this life. And you know, I don't think I'll ever meet anyone like him. After you guys opened Angler San Francisco, you opened Angler in LA. Were there any differences between opening those two restaurants or was it just kind of like doing it again? It was, it's completely different opening those restaurants. You know, there's its own challenges because the, the Angler LA one is in the Beverly Center. So um, it, it, that was like our first take at like a partnership with another brand, I guess, not really like a hotel, but like another being in a location that isn't our own. Um, where we have direct contact with a landlord or part of a group. There's always those kinds of challenges. Um, and of course, I think the difference in products is always my main concern. You know, SF is really blessed with specific types of flavors and produce and everything. And LA has, they're, they're two different opposite ends of the spectrum, honestly. Like San Francisco has beautiful, like has delicious vegetables in terms of like artichokes and the tomatoes are incredible up north here. And there's a lot of these, you know, uh, coastal succulents that are delicious and things like that. And LA has a longer growing season, but sometimes it's not as delicious for certain things. But then they also have access to like the best berries and they have incredible like hearts of palms and like it's so different, you know, things that you're used to tasting in SF just completely change in LA and vice versa. And so sometimes, you know, you go to LA and you taste some incredible produce and you're like, man, that's really good. And you come up to SF and you're like, why can't you get the same berries? I just had these in LA. They're delicious you know? and vice versa. So like, it's really interesting to go back and forth. There's pros and cons of both. I think they both have very special markets. I personally, I think the access to seafood is much better in LA. So it makes sense to have an angler down there. I'm not sure what SF was like 10, 15, 20 years ago, but you know the access to the seafood here now is not as great as it is down in LA. I know a lot of the the like the spot prawn boats, the spiny lobster boats. You know they're all based down towards like San Diego area. You know a lot of the urchin comes from down there now. Yeah, I mean I guess it, it depends on what you're looking for. The products are always different, and that's why we talked about R and D with special products as well. When COVID happens, kind of everything shuts down. You guys change over to Saison Smokehouse. 
barbecue. How did that come together? Like, how did that idea come up? Because it was like a collaborative thing, right? Yes. What happened was we had to shut down, initially had to shut down all of our restaurants. Um, after we had gone through and shut down all of our restaurants, you know, a lot, a couple of the managers, uh, we got together and we we're just kind of talking, what can we do to pivot and try to keep as many people employed as possible? And we started looking at like all the equipment and the hardware and what we're known for and all this kind of stuff. And uh, we decided that doing something along the lines of Smokehouse would be great. Um, we could, you know, combine all of our teams to one location in Angler. We have a beautiful 18 foot hearth over there with two wonderful JNR smokers. We're like, we have everything we need to turn this into a very unique, fast, casual, or, you know, semi-casual concept uh, that uh, is still in line with our brand of using live fire. We didn't want it to come off as a barbecue restaurant. So we, because, you know, there are people who dedicate their lives to do an amazing barbecue. And we, we just knew we couldn't compare. And so that's why we kind of took it as this unique approach of us. How about we just call ourselves a smokehouse? We definitely go through and smoke everything. We take on a couple of classic dishes like brisket and we turned it into a pastrami flavored brisket. Um, you know, we're doing, we're smoking pork bellies, but we were doing it uh, in a traditional Chinese style. Um, so like things of that nature. We understood was comfort food would be delicious, something that we can make available and uh, affordable to the entire community at the time and still support our team. Um, it was it was a really wonderful experience. I think that was the first time in our history where you know everyone from all of our restaurants kind of got together in one location and we had to all kind of reintroduce ourselves as a team and you know learn to work with each other. And uh, it really unified us uh, as a group. Um, it made us a lot stronger. You know, in the process, I know that we even raised, I think, close to about, I believe it was about $70,000 that we raised through like, you know, tips and gratuities from our community, which we then reimbursed 100% to all the employees that uh, weren't working at the time. And so it worked out great for our, our teams. We were able to support a lot of our team members in ways, in ways that we could. And uh, it provided, you know, purpose in a time that was very confusing. Yeah, it just it was just a really overall great experience. And I think that we were really blessed that we came out stronger out of COVID as a team. Do you think that's a concept that you guys will explore in the future, knowing that, you know, you can do something that's a little bit more casual and also has that takeout component to it? Yeah. You know, um, you're not the first person to ask us that. A lot of people have been asking when we're going to bring back Smokehouse. And, you know, it, it's always kind of on our back burner where we're really looking for the right location. We're not sure exactly where it is we want it to be. Uh, it is a little bit more difficult now because the city has kind of normalized a little bit in, in terms of potential dining possibilities. And at the same time, the foot traffic hasn't returned. So for a concept that was highly successful during COVID where, you know, you couldn't really sit in uh, at a restaurant, Smokehouse was perfect. Right now, I think Smokehouse would rely a lot more on foot traffic, which San Francisco really isn't seeing right now because of all the work from home uh, or the work remotely situations. So maybe in a couple of months or maybe a year when San Francisco kind of really gets that pace back, we can really kind down, find a neighborhood that we like and kind of, kind of go for it. Post-COVID, you can kind of correct me here if, if I'm wrong or way off, but there are some small good things that came out of COVID. With kind of Saison and, and you and Richard kind of taking over and taking the mantle after, you know, Laurent returned to New York and, and Josh had stepped away from the kitchen. 
did that help with kind of you guys figuring out how to kind of have your voice in the restaurant? And what I mean by that is kind of you guys wanted to do your own thing, create your own food, but you at the same time, you don't want to alienate anybody who has been a, a loyal guest or a loyal repeat diner to Cezanne or, or anybody who knows Cezanne kind of as it was. So do you think like COVID maybe helped kind of a natural break in that or is kind of like a reset in people's minds or, or did you guys already kind of have that covered before? It's a little bit of both. I think a, a lot of restaurants in California take on Asian influence, whether in the form of you know Chinese heritage, Japanese, Korean, like you see it kind of mixed blended in as a melting pot in almost every type of cuisine restaurant out there. At this point, you know, you see soy just as often in an American restaurant as you do in an Asian restaurant. It's just, it's kind of used across the board. It's almost accepted as an American condiment at this point. I think a lot of families, especially in California, just carry it. Because of that, I think Saison has always had uh, a link to those kinds of flavor profiles. You know, it's very similar to how fermentation or koji is being accepted, you know, more widely now. Everyone is exploring koji and, and all the uniqueness that it adds to, you know, the next type of cuisine that's blossoming. But at the same time, it's something that has been practiced in Eastern culture for thousands of years. And so I think Saison has done a really good job of branching those flavors and making it a little bit more palatable to um, a Western palate. During COVID, what had happened was they allowed us to kind of take it just to the next level and at least recognize and embrace our heritage a little bit more. You know, um, Before, I would say we would ferment something and make something using koji, make something similar to tamari uh, or a miso in-house. You would call it things like, oh, this was a fermented chickpea. You would never call it miso, right? Uh, I think a lot of people did think they, they played with names to make things sound a little bit more Western or unique or new. One thing that we want to do is, yes, that's great. It's great to you know, create this new type of framing for how people view food. But at the same time, we want to, I wanted to personally give some credit back to the heritage that brought this into the world. And so instead of just saying fermented soybeans, I would rather call it tenjang because that's how I was raised knowing it. And that's where it kind of originated from. I guess it's like a, a roundabout way of saying it. I think, yes, it did create a little bit of a platform for me and Chef Richard. But at the same time, I, I don't think we're that far off from what has been known as California cuisine. You guys are a seasonal restaurant maybe even to the point where it's like hyper seasonal, um, where it's more dependent upon the ingredient. How often do you guys kind of change the menu or work on new dishes that you want to incorporate in the menu? San Francisco really kind of has like three main seasons. And then there's kind of like partial seasons in between that are transitionary. You know, working with the seasons is, is, is a little bit of a challenge in a sense that the season never really starts the same time every year. You know, there's, there's times where it just stays warmer or the frost stays longer or it goes away and comes back and all the crop dies in spring. And you, know, you always have to be ready for that kind of stuff. And I think that's where the fermentation aspect really helps us. Korean cuisine is fundamentally based on preservation and saving for harsher times. And so having this kind of repertoire, um, having these flavor profiles and uh, these components ready and available at all times, we don't always need to rely on a fresh vegetable that may be not available in the wintertime. You know, we take a lot of vegetables and we'll dry them and we'll age them and have them ready so that we can reconstitute them with uh, some sort of flavored broth later on and still have like a root vegetable. Anglers a la carte 
saisons, a tasting menu. With that in mind, is there a right number of dishes for a tasting menu? Because I mean, I've heard, you know, chefs describe it as certain amount of food broken up over the course of five, six, seven, eight dishes. But you, there's also restaurants that do like Jose Andres, his restaurants do like 20 some dishes. They're all like one or two bites. So is there a right number of dishes for a tasting menu? Is it, you know, restaurant dependent? I think it's very restaurant dependent. You know, I think every chef has their inherent style and what they want to share and the story they want to tell. And, you know, it's based upon their vision. And I don't think there's one style that's better than the other. It's it's really very, it's it's a form of art for a lot of these, for a lot of chefs out there. Um, and they're just trying to portray their message through the canvas, which is food. I, I think, you know, for us at Saison, we generally do anywhere from, well, I would say like nine to 12 courses, but we break it down very differently where one course isn't a single plate. One course is considered fish course where you get, you know, a raw crew of some sort of fish. Currently we're serving amberjack. Um, and then you'll get a sauce made out of uh, a sauce that has been gelatinized with the fish's bones and then a dipping sauce made from its head. And then you get a collar uh, that we grill over and we serve it that as well. And it's, yes, it, we consider it one course, but that one course has four to five different edible components to it that encompass one part of the story we want to tell. You know, similar things for, you know, our protein course. Currently, we're doing antelope, but you get the antelope saddle, then you'll get a braised piece of the antelope, and then in turn, we'll follow by making a, a, a broth made from the antelope itself. And there's a, a progression to it. I, I guess you would kind of say it's similar to how Koreans have panchan, like on the sides of the main component, or uh, how Japanese, uh, in Japanese culture, they have like kaiseki style, where it's like a flow of multiple plates that tell the story of the seasons. Um, and so we kind of do a similar style. And so for us, you might hear 10 to 12 courses and people like, ah, that doesn't seem like much compared to a 22 course. But in terms of how many bites you're actually getting or how many different flavor profiles, it's just as much. And so it's really about how you just want to tell the story, I think. Um, at the end of the day, we just want the guests to have a meaningful experience, to enjoy the food and just want to share their experiences with their friends. And you know, we hope that we did the best we could to make their night memorable. With kind of that methodology in mind, is it still like one component of each course, like touches the hearth? Yes, absolutely. We still make sure that every course has multiple components that touch the hearth. There, there isn't a single course on our menu that has not been touched by fire in some way, whether it be directly heated over the embers or smoked over a longer period of time, whether it's tempered over the fire, finished over the fire. You know, there's there's always some component that is going to touch our heart. Going back to kind of the tasting menu, do you think there's a natural length to the tasting menu, or do you do you guys kind of work within the parameters of like, yeah, we don't really want to run over two and a half, three hours? Because I remember, I think it was a couple years ago that like Thomas Keller got kind of knocked for his restaurants per se and and the French Laundry that because they were kind of pushing like four hours in the tasting menu, which is a pretty long time. So do you guys work within the confines of time at all? Yeah. I mean, we, we do too much of a good thing. Isn't always a good thing. Right. And so we want to make sure that the guests are comfortable as well. We don't want people to leave overtly like too full or, or uh, they had too much wine. And like, after that, it, it's no longer a, a wonderful experience, but it could kind of damper the mood a little bit. You know, conversations can run at a lull. There, there's so many things that can happen. That's not to say that it's wrong to have a 
tasting menu that long. I know some people who love having very elaborate four-hour tasting menus. For myself personally, I think uh, anywhere from two and a half to three hours is the perfect amount for myself. And so we try to kind of fit it in that realm. I would say on average, our tasting menu is always about three hours, maybe three hours and 15 minutes. What's the craziest kind of most out there dish, most out there idea that you came up with that you wanted to put on the menu, you weren't sure it was going to go over well or if people would kind of get it, but they did? Yeah, there hasn't been anything that I think was has been too out there. I think the kind of restaurant that we are invites people to explore more adventurous ideas. There's nothing that I think I have put on the, the menu that I thought it was too much. I don't put anything on a menu that I wouldn't eat myself. Generally, the type of people, because a lot of them are world travelers, they're a little bit more accustomed to seeing these these types of items, you know, um, I think you, know, you go to somewhere like Europe, people are eating like calf spring. I don't think anyone in America would think to eat something like that. What is that? Calves, like a, like a cow brain. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that would resonate here, but like, I mean, I, I could be wrong. Cause like Marcin and them, they put, you know, rabbit brain on the menu. Obviously they didn't call it rabbit brain, but yeah, from, from when I talked with them, you know, they were are only a day or two in, but I mean, Nobody was like questioning it or sending it back or anything. So, and then, you know, even in Japan, Shirako is a huge thing, which is millet. I can't really see. Well, I guess there are like, what is it, Colorado oyster? That's kind of like, uh, but like, I think every culture has certain things that are a little bit more off putting to other cultures. And, and that's okay. And that's why this kind of exchange is so important. You know, one of my favorite things to eat is uh, sunde, which is like a Korean version of blood pudding. It's a bunch of, uh, vermicelli rice noodles stuffed with pig's blood and steamed in the intestines. I think it's incredible. It's one of my favorite things. Um, a lot of times they serve that with fermented shrimp to top it off. So you're eating pig's blood with fermented shrimp. It's incredibly delicious. Depending on the culture, uh, every culture has something like that. And because we get so many international travelers that come into the Saison, nothing is really too much. You know, I don't, I don't think we've ever served anything that was really so out there that people refuse to eat it. Maybe about like a month ago, you know, it came out that you're officially kind of named the culinary director for all of the the restaurants now with Angler LA being under your purview now and responsibility. Uh, maybe it was 50% of the time before, but now it fully is. With all that and taking on maybe some additional duties, I mean, what's kind of next? Any tidbits that you can provide or is that all still under wraps under kind of other projects that you're going to be working on too? Yeah, I mean, we're always looking for the next thing for us. We have a couple of concepts that we've been kind of fine-tuning and looking to, for the right location to open these concepts. It's it's all really a matter of a time for us. You know, I think we have such an amazing team. Uh, we recently just hired on uh, one of our old chefs has returned, uh, Adam, who has now taken over Angler SF. And then Chef Brian uh, Limoges, who is our corporate chef, and you know he has such great pedigree as well. You know he's incredible experience, such a well-rounded chef. So we're just we're ready. We're we're looking for the right opportunities, and we're just we're going to keep marching forward. Nothing in particular per se. I can't really say like we have another restaurant coming in a year. Like we don't know that yet. But we're we're really just ready to go <laughs> whenever the opportunity comes up. 
With Cezanne having this kind of legacy, as you mentioned, it being kind of this legacy restaurant, now that you've been a part of it for, you know, a handful of years, I mean, probably, I think, five, six years, probably now you've kind of been involved. If somebody eventually writes a book on the restaurant, what do you want the Paul Chung chapter? What do you want that to say? COVID. Survives COVID. <laughs> None of the chefs have gone through a pandemic. I have. <laughs> that's that's the way. Yeah, I get the pandemic chapter, you know. No, I think I was brought on a very unique time where I I was really brought on for growth. I, I think that that's what I would like to say that I was really here to focus on the growth of the team. The next chapter, uh, I think it's it's not just a series, but I think like the before my time uh, with the team before Angler SF and Angler LA came into fruition. It's almost not just a chapter in a book, but it's almost like a whole separate book. It's like book one, and then now from Angler SF onto now is book two. So much has happened in the in book one where you know so many great accomplishments were made by Chef Joshua and all the CDCs and you know Scott Clark, Matt Cam. Um, I know that uh, Chris, uh, Chef Chris from um, Birdsong and and Rodney from Avery, and you know there's so many talented people who have come through this kitchen that have really paved the way for someone like myself to come in and. Uh, take it to the next level. You know, I, I truly believe I'm I'm just adding to their story. Hopefully, you know, if if my time comes to leave, I leave this place better than the way I found it, so that someone else could write the next chapter or the book or take it to the next level. It's just I just want to see this company continue to grow. I've invested a lot of time and personal effort into this company, and I just want nothing but the best for it. Are there any hobbies or activities you do outside of obviously working to kind of take your mind off cooking? Yeah. Um, I really think exercise is super important. I try to work out at least three to four times a week. You know, I'm a firm believer that like strong mind, strong body, you have to have both together in tandem. I really have started getting into, I guess, I don't know, it's a horticulture with plants. I've started to collect a couple of rare trees that I want to plant in my house backyard one day. I have a yuzu tree now. I have a sudachi tree. Uh, I got a few uh, uh, sancho peppercorn trees. You know, just things along those lines. You know, this is a little bit out there, but I recently decided that I'm going to start uh, raising snails to see if I could harvest them. <laughs> and so I started raising some snails in my apartment. Um, I've always just found myself to have a lot of weird, interesting, curious, and quirky hobbies. And so, you know, I'll try something out for a while and see how I feel about it. If I like it, I'll stick to it. If not, I'll move on to something else. But because, you know, during the pandemic time, we were so quarantined to the indoors. I think a lot of my hobbies at the moment are geared towards staying indoors in my apartment. With the snails, raising snails. Now I'm assuming it's similar to probably fish. There's a bunch of different kinds of snails and breeds and stuff. But in terms of raising them, is that to to raise them so eventually they can wind up on a, a restaurant uh, dinner table? No, it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting, actually. The, the snails that I have some of them are adults. They actually started uh, laying eggs, but I've never made snail caviar. I, I guess I would have to research into that to see how that's done. Um, I have really only had, uh, I guess, pre-cooked snails in America. I've had fresh snails in France and I've had fresh snails in Korea, but I've never been to a restaurant in America that serves fresh snails. Maybe I'm just not going to the right places. But I do know that the California snails are edible. Um, they're the similar variety as the ones you can find in France. Uh, there's like a, I'm not sure how true this is, but there's a story that 
you know, during the gold rush times, some French gentlemen brought snails over to America to see if you could farm them and, you know, sell them. Of course, back then, the, the country was not ready to be eating snails. And so it didn't really work out. And his snails just kind of got let go into the wild. And because the environment was so great here, they just multiplied. From what I understand, snails uh, don't have a very, they don't have a specified sex. And so they could just reproduce very rapidly. They really thrived here. From my understanding, it's the same species or same variety as the ones in France. You know, I was jogging one day and I, I just happened to come across a patch of them. And there was a, a huge grouping of them, like out of nowhere. I think it was like 40 of them. There's one little grass patch. So I decided to harvest them and be like, okay, like, what can I do with this? And uh, based upon what I've studied, they are the right size for harvesting. So I'm just kind of taking care of them a little bit, feeding them. At a certain point, I'm going to have to uh, kind of starve them for two weeks to clean them out. And then I want to just try eating them and seeing what they're like. I've always been kind of curious with like foraging and fishing and the outdoors and things like that. What's the setup? Is it like an aquarium tank, kind of like a, a light box on top? No, um, they don't really like a lot of light and they just need a constant temperature, a lot of humidity. I just have this really large, clear, like Rubbermaid like storage container. And I added some natural organic soil to the bottom, a few rocks. Uh, I planted a few like, like moss on top of it. I guess it's kind of like a terrarium or something. I, I just saw it online, like how to raise snails. It's amazing what you can find on YouTube these days. The, the main thing is just to keep uh, the environment extremely uh, humid and uh, make sure that they're not drying out. And then once a day, you add a bowl of water and some food. I'm primarily giving them kale and cucumbers right now. Kale apparently is really good for the calcium that kind of makes them have stronger shells to protect them a little bit more. That's, that's pretty much it. You know, they, they poop a lot. You have to clean their cage very often. But I'm hoping that eating a fresh snail is going to be uh, rewarding. And I'll see how it is. Can you do anything with the waste? Like, is it like good for plants, compostable stuff or anything like that? Or I'm not sure. I mean, like, it's so, it's so little. I, I wouldn't want to collect the waste and hold on to it to see if I could. Um, I've never, I mean, maybe in the wild, it's great. But maybe in a month or so, we could have a, a follow up to this podcast and I'll tell you how they are. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anybody who's ever raised snails or anything like that. I came across it in this, uh, it's not a great Ben Affleck movie on Hulu. Uh, he was raising snails, but they didn't explain anything about it. It was just this weird like hobby that he had, apparently his character, in the movie. <laughs> and I was like, uh, are we not going to do anything with this? Or like, he's just got in his basement of his house in New Orleans or whatever. His character's just got like humidifiers misting everywhere. And he's like holding on to snails. And it's like, all right. And they didn't do anything with it, so. Oh, man, that's what I'm going to be in 10, 15 years. <laughs> Restaurant groups, they employ a lot of people, you know, front of the house, back of the house, marketing, social media. In your experience, are restaurant groups in major cities always kind of recruiting people from one restaurant to the other? Like people move around a lot. Is, is that kind of the experience with San Francisco or has that changed since COVID? No, I think it's, it's still pretty consistent, uh, especially for like the back and the front of house. I think in the, the corporate team level, you see a little bit more of a larger exchange um, amongst different industries, especially for like marketing or uh, chief of staff or you know, social media and PR. Uh, but in terms of front of house and back of house departments, um, yes, you definitely do a lot of exchange. And there's exchange between fellow restaurants in the city. And then you see a lot of transplant movement from like New York to San Francisco and vice versa. Usually when you get to a certain 
I guess not like a level, but once you garner a certain amount of experience on your CV, you tend to start targeting certain types of restaurants. And so you do see a lot of, of intersecting traffic. And it, it's always good because you have strong references and you always have somebody that worked with somebody who's applying. It's a really good way to stay connected in the industry. Is it okay to call San Francisco San Fran or Frisco? When I first came here, I used to call it San Fran and everyone kind of made fun of me for it. I heard it's supposed to be Frisco. I don't understand it. I'm not from here. <laughs> you know, I, I think I still call it San Fran. <laughs> I'm not sure. Since you've been there, you know, for a number of years, how would you say the the food and restaurant industry in San Francisco has changed? What do you think still needs to change and and where do you see kind of the food scene in the city headed for like the rest of the decade? I think San Fran has developed really well, did an extremely good job in defining its type of cuisine uh, and the fine dining atmosphere. You know, you see a lot of really good destination restaurants um, who hyper-localized California cuisine and artisans. And, you know, they really try to promote the crafts that are made in California across the board. The one thing I think San Francisco really could work on is having a lot more, I would say, mid-level or like mid-tier, semi-casual kind of restaurants. Some of the things that I really miss about places like Chicago or DC or New York is that you know, you could have a really wonderful meal and not have to break the bank. Whereas a lot of times in San Francisco, it's, it's a lot more expensive to go out and eat. There's really a, a gap. We have a lot of highly affordable, you know, like fast casual concepts. And then we have really high end, like mission level and above. That mid-level area is not as, there's not as many concepts as I wish there were, you know, uh, not like some of the other cities I've lived in. And so I really would love to see it expand in that direction. This is just my personal take on things. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that real estate is so expensive here. You know, you're either playing the numbers game or the experiential game. Being in the middle is kind of a little bit of both. And with the way that the prices of rent, you know, rise every year, it kind of forces concepts to go in one or the other direction. San Francisco isn't a very big city. It's seven by seven. When you look at like San Francisco proper, now there's of course... East Bay and South Bay and everything. But in terms of being a resident in the city of San Francisco, it's pretty small in comparison to some of the other larger cities. And so I think because of that, the restrictions of the real estate, transportation, there's a few things that the city has to kind of overcome for us to be able to really expand in that area. It's also kind of hard to, at least, you know, my recent experience out there is kind of hard to find lunch places. Not a whole lot of places are open for lunch, which makes sense because of staffing shortages. People come back out of COVID and they don't want to have extra people on hand if you're not doing business and everything. So it's completely understandable. But but that, I think, is going to be the last segment for a lot of cities. I mean, even here in Columbus, we don't have a whole lot of places that are open for lunch during the week. Not that it's really a big lunch town anyways. That's just not something we have really anymore. Yeah. I mean, lunch was never an issue in San Francisco pre-COVID. I mean, Angler used to actually be open for lunch and we would do pretty well. And, you know, we're, we're like a destination restaurant doing lunch. It's not like an everyday thing, but it was enough to keep it open. We had a lot of really good lunch concepts and, you know, available stores. But I think because of the exit from the city, because we're mainly, our, I guess the main, the main industry here is tech that when everything went remote, everybody left the city. And so there was really just no need to have these places and just no lunch traffic anymore. 
This next question comes from Ian Holmes of Coastal Local Seafood, uh, seafood purveyor and distributor we have here in Columbus, Ohio. He's the previous guest on the podcast. He left behind a question. When you go inside your walk-in or go inside your pantry, do you see things that are helping other businesses in your community or city? Or do you always kind of see outside ingredients that you guys are kind of bringing in? No. So uh, we, as I mentioned before, we try to hyper-localize all of our ingredients in the SF uh, Bay Area. If anything, we'll extend down to Southern California. And sometimes we'll have to go towards like Washington because the Dungeons Crab seasons kind of overlap for the Bay Area and Washington State. So at Angler, we'll have to go up there for Dungeons Crabs. I would say like 95% of the time, we're hyper-local and trying to support all the SF community vendors. Um, we're extremely blessed that both of our restaurants are within a 10-minute walking distance from the Ferry Building Market, which we actively attend like twice a week. And we still keep in touch with all the farmers. Um, we like to have a beat on all the produce that's coming in, especially this time of year where spring is coming around and SF has wonderful products during the spring. Yeah, we're very supportive of that. Yeah, you guys are getting into pea and white asparagus season, I believe, is coming up. Yeah, we have green asparagus right now, so it's really popping off. Yeah, I remember the one time we were out there, I think it was like May, and it was just this like three-week period of everybody had peas. They're like, this pea season, peas was on like every place that you went to. For me, it's, I really like to consider spring when lilacs come around. Lilacs are, you know, it's a, it's a very early aromatic flower. They're only available for like three to four weeks. And usually I see them right when spring is starting. And so as soon as I start seeing lilacs in the markets, I get really excited. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. Uh, can you give me a clue to what kind of guest it's going to be? Is it a chef? Is it a winemaker? Uh, so I have a little bit more of a directed question. It'll be somebody within the restaurant community, very meat-focused. Very meat-focused. Ooh, man. I guess, I don't know if this is too political, but what kind of responsibility do you feel restaurants need to play on the carbon footprint that is left behind by the meat industry? I think America consumes more meat than any other country in the world. We know that it's very destructive, the greenhouse gases, but you know, you see steakhouses opening all the time and they're some of the most profitable restaurants concepts that are out there. It's, it's kind of like that double-edged sword. Do you want to open a restaurant that's like high turn time, high profitability? Steakhouse. That's how you do it. We all know that that meat is slowly destroying the world. You know? So what do you do about that? This uh, next question comes from one of our listeners. What ingredient or food do you think is the next it item, similar to Brussels sprouts from a few years ago? I think you're going to start to see a lot more usage in seaweeds. I think there is a really good push, especially in the coastal states, to start taking care of the, the fisheries and the, uh, the ecosystem that's surrounding these fisheries, uh, especially in California. You know, the kelp forests are extremely important to us. And they're delicious and they're extremely healthy for you. You know, this seaweed is something that is ingrained in a lot of cultures, a lot of neighboring cultures in Asia. And, you know, we consume like 10 to 20 different kinds on a regular basis. Uh, I think in America, it's not as common, but you're starting to see a lot of like Michelin starred fine dining chefs take on this ingredient and really showcasing it in different ways that you know, haven't really been explored before. I actually had a great meal at Smith in uh, Chicago with Chef John. 
And, you know, he did a lot of interesting things with seaweed that I have never even tried or considered. And I've been eating this stuff my entire life. So it's really interesting to see what people are doing with it, coming in with fresh eyes. And I, I hope that we continue to do that because as we continue to, you know, care for or as we continue to share seaweed on menus, people are going to care more about it. They're going to want to take care of it. And it's just, it's going to be overall better for the ocean, I think. Last set of questions here for you. We ask these everybody who come on the podcast, a nice compare and contrast across the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career looking back on it? Oh, man, that's tough. That's, I, I don't think I have a single one person. I mean, but I've really had to give it up. It's definitely my mom. Like just the way I like things seasoned, the, the salinity level, the acidity, like all those base flavor profiles. I got that all from my mother's cooking. Um, she's probably influenced me the most. The person who really got me to explore the idea of taking uh, the food service industry as a profession would be my old high school vocational teacher, Chef Double, Clay Doubleday. And then there's, of course, just like such a long lineage of chefs that have just that I'm like extremely grateful to for just taking the time to teach me and being patient with me and stuff. So it takes forever to, to list them all. but. If anyone that's ever trained me is listening, I want them to know that I'm extremely grateful to them. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? A spoon. Not like one singular spoon, but just like knives, there's spoons for everything. Um, and you know, I think most cooks who are listening will probably understand that chefs have very uh, intimate personal collections of spoons that we collect throughout the years for saucing or... Uh, you know, doing quenelles or rochers or even using as tongs, basting. There's, it's across the board. You need spoons. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? Scenario I usually give somebody gets stuck at the airport in San Francisco, can't get out till the following day. You guys aren't open for dinner. Saison, Angler's not open. They reach out to you. Hey, where should I go? I'm here for one night. You point them in this direction. Does it have to be like a fine dining restaurant or just like any restaurant? No, it can be wherever you want, wherever you think they're going to get the best meal that you can kind of point them to. And they like all types of cuisine. Uh, if you are stuck in San Francisco for one night, I would say an establishment that I would kind of point them towards is House of Prime Rib. It's like a, a very old school style restaurant that's been around in San Francisco forever. You know, they have the whole carts where they cut the prime rib and do the table side Caesar. This is one of those fun environments you just don't see anymore in restaurants. There's just so much history there. And I know that it's one of those magical places that chefs love to go celebrate as well. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you haven't been to that you want to go to and restaurant that you haven't been to, but you want to eat at. I would love to travel through China. I think they have an immense culinary history that I just know so little about, uh, especially all the different regions that you can explore. Um, it's very similar to America, you know, it's like comparing like Southern cooking to, you know, New England style cooking. They're just, there's similarities, but they're so inherently different. And so I would love to do a, like a food tour of China, going through like the Sichuan areas, the, the, you know, Shanghai, Hunan, all that kind of stuff. If I could have one restaurant that I would love to go to right now, it would be Echevari. It's in Spain. I honestly think that a lot of the inspiration for Angler came from that restaurant. And so I would love to just check out that location. I, I've always heard amazing things about it, the simplicity, the flavors, the sourcing, and they're the restaurant that kind of inspires a lot of other restaurants. So I'd love to go check that place out. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Oh, I don't kiss and tell. <laughs> I've seen a lot. 
Give me something. Give me one thing. We've had SWAT team roll in. Somebody got stabbed with a knife, grease fires, Ansel system going off, and we've had a bunch of different stuff. There was a restaurant that I used to work at where we worked in very close, tight proximity of each other. People would kind of bump into each other and get into a lot of arguments and fights all the time. There was a, I wouldn't say a rule, but kind of a culture where if two team members were not seeing eye to eye, they would go into the walk-in and duke it out. A lot of times somebody would come out with like a bloody nose or like a black eye or something. It, it, was, it was actually pretty common. You know, luckily for me, I'm not much of a fighter, so I would never get myself into those situations. But I've seen plenty of people get hurt. And I'm surprised that that kind of culture lasted as long as it did. I don't know if anybody would want to take you. I mean, you're like, what, 6'5", six, 6'6"? Six, six? Like, you're you're tall. No, I'm 6'3". Right, well, then everybody else in the Saison kitchen is short because you like tower over them. And it's like you, you stand out in a crowd. Yeah, I, I'm probably one of the tallest Asian. Like, everyone always says I'm like the tallest Korean they've ever seen. I, I really think it's all that Virginia milk that I was drinking growing up. It's just funny because like when you look into the kitchen saison and you're there, you're at least like four or five inches taller than like the next person like standing next to you. Yeah, uh, I think that's why I have so much back pain. You know, all those kitchens are designed for people who aren't 6'3". So, you know, over the years, I've developed a little bit of a, a pain in my neck. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that you know is terrible for you, whether it's fast food, candy, whatever, but you just can't help yourself? Anyone on my team knows that I have an addiction to Starbucks Frappuccinos. I drink at least one a day. I have a very specific drink. My team knows about it. Whenever someone gets me a coffee, they know exactly which Frappuccino to get me. It's a part of my identity at this point. A favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of if you're looking back across your career up till now, you could kind of point to this one thing as like your aha moment, like you knew you could be, you know, a professional chef. I don't think there was like a specific dish that made me feel like I could be a chef. I think it was when I worked a very specific station at a restaurant that was really known to be the most difficult station in the restaurant. You know, like if you could work this station successfully, you were probably in line to becoming the next sous chef. And I was always a very quiet cook. I didn't really speak much. Uh, and, you know, there was a point where they needed to fill that position and three or four cooks went through that station and they couldn't handle it. And it finally became my turn to try it. I did very well. And I think working that station and getting the praise for being able to do it kind of really boosted my confidence level to show me that I could really be successful in this if I wanted to be. What was the station? Was it grill, cold apps? It was the roast station, any kind of meat and a lot of different varieties of seafood as well. You know, we would have like 18 different kinds of cuts at any one time and they're all given different temperatures. It's just, it was a lot. It's a huge, huge station to run. <laughs> it's probably the most fun I've had in cooking too. You know, it was one of those things where you just get in the zone, you know, you block everything out. You don't have any tickets and you're just listening for the chef's voice to call out orders and you're just cooking the entire time. Favorite Instagram account you follow? I don't think I have one. I don't think I have a favorite Instagram account that I like actively follow. What's one that you enjoy? You know, when you come across it and when you're scrolling, you're like, oh yeah, you always find yourself stopping on that one for a second. I don't really scroll like that, but I do have a group chat with some of my old, like, you know, friends from high school and college, and, you know, they're all there. And it's just a chat where people send each other memes and no one talks in the chat. We just send memes and we all know that we're laughing. <laughs> That's it. No one says a single word. 
the memes. That's how you know they care. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. Uh, if you were, was there a moment, episode, scene about him that kind of stood out to you the most? If you weren't, is there another culinary personality, whether it's an Emerald or a Bobby Flay or anybody who's on kind of TV that you kind of gravitated towards? The reason why I went to L2O is because I saw the Anthony Bourdain issue. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really have the social understanding to understand some of the things that are being discussed on his shows or, you know, some of the controversial topics that he may have been talking about at the time. Um, when his show was very prominent, I was still very young and, influ- uh, and you know, influenced by a lot of different things. I don't think I had a, a, a strong opinion on a lot of things myself. You know, his episode on L2O definitely made me want to go work with Chef Laurent. I, you know, I loved watching the old school Japanese Iron Chef. You know, Chef Sakai was incredible. You know, I lo- always loved his lobster battle. And then, you know, I actually really enjoyed, you know, some of uh, Gordon Ramsay's actual like travel and cooking shows where he, you know, goes to a region and he works with the vendors. And, you know, I think there's this new one on Disney Plus where he goes to certain regions and he has to like find his own food and work with the local products and, you know, cook with a chef from that regional area using their kind of historical style of cooking. And uh, I, I just, I find that very uh, humbling because a lot of times he messes up and you could see how someone of his stature and expertise is still constantly traveling and learning about food. And, you know, I love that approach to it because I don't think I will ever stop either. You know, I, I want to constantly travel and learn more about food. And so I don't think I'm the best at cooking in any any sort of way. You know, I'm just, I, I kind of like that about that TV series. It, it just It just shows that even the best have to be humble. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. My Instagram is PB Kitchen. It's PB because uh, my Korean initial for my middle name is Pumgi. And my nickname in a lot of kitchens growing up was Peanut Butter. So it just kind of stuck. <laughs> so it was PB Kitchen. Uh, but that's it. That's the only social media that I have. Saison, you can obviously follow that account. Of course. Yeah, you could follow Angler San Francisco, Saison SF. We actually recently opened a Saison Hospitality Instagram account. Um, this is something that we really want to do because, you know, at, at a lot of the websites, you see the highlights of the CDC and the head SOM or the GM. But we really wanted a way to share the activities and the stories of a lot of our like junior sous or our sous chefs or people who are working with us to elevate our company in every single way. But they don't have the platform with the limelight that some of the senior level managers have. And so um, if you really want to learn a lot more about our staff and our team members, you should Go to our Saison Hospitality Instagram. They always have like these little questionnaires where the sous chefs talk about their favorite dishes and what they like to do. And so it's a great way to actually learn about the team behind the scenes. I've eaten at both restaurants. They're both incredibly unique, uh, incredibly delicious food. Saison is, I mean, small restaurant, but it's, it's a fine dining restaurant, but it's a relaxed atmosphere, there to have a good time, eat delicious food. Huge wine list. Uh, it's a giant binder <laughs> that you get to kind of scroll through. But Anglers, you know, equally as delicious, you know, and there's some overlap and some similarities and some stuff. And you can see kind of where, you know, they kind of paid homage almost to Saison with, with some of the stuff where there was the quail that they had or or even like uh, the Sunday, you know, the similar to. So, I mean, if you're in San Francisco or never been to the LA one, eventually probably get there, but definitely check those out. Really appreciate you coming on, you know, taking some time. I'm, I'm glad we got to finally connect and, and do this. 
and get this kind of recorded. Hard to find, you know, kind of after Lauren left, like who was kind of the chef and, and everything like that. There wasn't any sort of like articles or anything. And then once it kind of came out, I was like, oh, okay. Like it's, it's Richard and Paul. All right. And I was like, I wonder if anybody, I wonder if either one of them would be up to do it and, and eventually got you on here. So um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you coming on and and hopefully we'll see you, you know, sometime in, in 2023 or, or something like that. Get back out there. Good luck with the the snails. Keep me updated on on the progress on that because that's that's pretty unique. But uh, good luck with future endeavors, future businesses too as well. And and stay in touch. And hopefully, like I said, we'll be seeing you next year. Absolutely. Uh, I just really want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak and you know share a little bit of my personal story and the story that we want to continue with Saison Hospitality. Um, it's always exciting to be able to share uh, our backgrounds on a unique platform like this. So I really appreciate it. A big thanks again to Chef Paul Chung for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his days off to chat with me about his career and what they got going on over at Saison Hospitality and future projects and everything like that too as well. So make sure to follow him on Instagram at PB Kitchen, also at Saison Hospitality, at Saison SF, at Angler Restaurants, at Angler San Francisco, and at Angler LA, Los Angeles spelt out at Saison Smokehouse too. But all those handles are on the webpage that we have for them up on the website. So check that out, spoonmob.com. Follow us on Instagram at spoonmob. Twitter and Facebook, we're on there as well. It's spoonmob1. And then also feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback. Make sure to follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on all the platforms. That's it for this week. More cool and interesting stuff on the way too. So we will talk to you guys next Thursday.